0: Welcome to the All for Literacy podcast, hosted by Dr. Liz Brooke. Welcoming established and emerging voices in literacy education and the science of reading. Explore with us the connections between literacy research, educators' knowledge and skills, and the implementation into classroom instruction. We call it a third grade law, but this is not just a third grade teacher's
1: responsibility. This is every teacher, that touches that child
0: as they transition to getting to third grade. You just heard Dr. Kimiana Burke, Senior Policy Fellow for Excel in Ed and former Executive Director for the Jackson Public School District's Office of Teaching and Learning. Today, Dr. Burke joins Dr. Liz Brook in a conversation about the role of a comprehensive approach to K-3 reading policy, how to assist state leaders in building new or improving existing K-3 reading policies, and how we can support successful policy implementation on All for Literacy. Here's your host, Liz Brooke.
2: Thank you for joining us today as we speak with Dr. Kimyana Burke, Senior Policy Fellow for Early Literacy at Excel and Ed. Welcome, Kimyana. I'm excited to welcome you today and get to reconnect with you after many years of working together
1: Yes, many may not know that you have kind of been by our side in Mississippi over this last decade with our literacy efforts to support the implementation of our Literacy-Based Promotion Act. So I appreciate the opportunity to reconnect with you today and to have this
2: conversation around literacy. Great. Thanks so much again for taking the time. I will always like to start these podcasts when we think about becoming an educator and really hearing about your story and what inspired your choice to become an educator.
1: Well, initially it wasn't my choice. I came to education through the alternate route. I wanted to be an attorney. (laughs) So my undergraduate degree is actually in political science. So I've always loved the policy side of things. Would have always loved English and the language and literature and those things as well. But I, for my undergraduate degree, chose political science. And once I graduated, I decided to take a year off. And during that year, one of my aunt's friends said, well, you should become a substitute teacher. You know, just take this year, just substitute teach before you go to law school. And that year changed my life. My first day of being a substitute teacher, I was offered a job. Oh hope I have an elementary school, right, to teach reading, to teach reading to first grade students. And that began my journey. And I, I really enjoyed teaching. I enjoyed the interactions with students, even the interaction with my colleagues. And that year I became
2: certified to teach English in secondary schools. Wow. Yes. Well, I love that we all come to the classroom or to education in different ways. And I love that story that the passion you felt from being in the classroom, even as a substitute teacher, you really saw that amazing power of being a teacher. I also started as a first grade teacher But what I often have been sharing lately is that I was one of those teachers who hadn't been trained in how to teach reading or even really what the science of reading was. So that first grade year is such a powerful year in terms of, as you were saying, to teach them to read. So it's interesting that you said you began, you know, as that elementary teacher. And then you also taught, did you say middle and high school English? Middle and high school English. Yes. Yes.
1: My father was a teacher as well. And so that was a part of my resistance to say, well, I'm not going to be a teacher. My father's a teacher. My aunt was an educator and dean at a college for a long time. And so I was just resistant to it. But then it really found me I guess, and embraced me. And so uh, that's how it came to be. But yes, once I became certified to teach English, and as you know, if you go the alternate route, you're really considered a content area expert, right? Because you didn't go to right. the traditional, traditional teacher preparation program. And so that's why my certification was for secondary schools and for English. I took that assessment and passed it, so became certified in English. Then I got a job at the middle school and my story is such that I had always taught advanced courses, advanced classes. We had an academic program where our students were, of course, above average students academically. So I taught English and social studies for three years in the middle school. And then I was recruited to teach at the high school in the international baccalaureate program. So again, another advanced program with students in high school. And my first year, my schedule changed and the principal said, well, yes, you still want to teach IB, but I also have this one class of repeaters that I need to add to your course load. And I said, well, repeaters, what do you mean? And she said, well, these are students who are over age who may still be classified as ninth graders. And so they are repeating the grade. They're repeating ninth grade. Some of them, this is their first time repeating. Others, this may be their second time repeating. So just imagine, right? An educator who had been in classrooms where children were just so eager to learn and right. and, and then to be told, well, now you're going to have a class that's, you know, these students have been struggling for a while. And that's going to be added to your course load. So that truly began my journey around, you know, how to be a part of the strong start. You know, how do children get to high school and are struggling to read? What has happened in the pipeline? Was it that teachers just didn't know what to do, right? Because we definitely know that teachers aren't showing up every day to not do a good job. So was it that teachers just didn't know what to do? Were children just not identified? So I had all of these questions around, how did these children who are now young adults, right? How did they get here? And and I knew that I wasn't equipped to really do anything about it. And so that was the hard reality for me. And that's when I you know, went back to school to get a degree in early childhood
2: education, my doctorate in early childhood education and my concentration in reading. Wow. Yeah. And I love so many things there that you were saying. First out how you said it really found you right? This profession really found you. And thinking about going from the extreme of the above average class to those repeaters, mm-hmm. and even thinking about from elementary, as you started in elementary to middle and high school, yes. what did you see were some of those challenges? Did it shift really in terms of the challenges you saw around literacy from elementary to secondary? Or are you seeing similarities even across all the grades K-12? Well,
1: it definitely shift. Um, it's shifted in a variety of ways, too, as far as not just for the students. Of course, in elementary school, you know, it's kind of like a blank slate. Right. I had a scripted program, you know, so that was, you know, when you said, well, hadn't been taught how to teach reading, but I had a scripted program that I was using with those students, with first graders. And it was really kind of like a sponge. I didn't have to help them unlearn strategies that may have been poor strategies around reading. Right. I was really a part of this. You know, this is how you learn to read. This is how you track the words. This is how you decode. This is how, you know, these are the sounds of the words. So I had this program that was helping me to do those things. And it was more of a blank slate with younger students. Also, the parental involvement was much greater at -hmm. that younger age, right? So now we're going to add in some new characters to this story, right? Parental involvement was a lot greater at that age. As I transitioned to middle school, students were in this area where they were becoming young adults, right? Parents were giving them more responsibility, but they were still children, right? They still depended on their parents if they had a project, the parent had to take them to the store to get the supplies or those kind of things, but they're still wanting to have some independence, but also still needing a lot of guidance and a lot of handholding with that. But again, I taught students who were more advanced students who had already been accustomed to being challenged and you know having rigorous assignments and those things so my parental involvement there was also very great parents were very involved in what their children needed to do what the homework was all of that so we're still at this age where we're not looking at them as young adults we're still looking at them as children and they still need the support in those things when i transitioned to high school it became a bit different of course, you still have parents who are supportive, but you also have students who, and I've always taught in low income areas. You have parents who are very supportive, who want to make sure their children are there every day. You also have some instances of like real life circumstances where there are children who are raising themselves or raising their siblings because their parents siblings, are working yeah. or, you know, all of the real life circumstances that come along with that and with being now a young adult or someone who can help in the family unit, right? So I had, you know, situations in which, again, this was my first experience with, of course, young adults who were struggling to read. I began to do some things with those students that I was also doing with my IV students, And so my perspective was I wanted to attack it in a way where I would not lower the bar for those students that I would actually raise the bar. And I stretched them. It stretched me during that year as an educator and to begin to get through to students. And in those situations, I had to build a lot of relationships first, you know, build the trust and the, you know, I'm here to make sure that you are successful and that looks like me not allowing you to fail. That looks like me pushing you when you feel like you just want to give up. That it looks different when I want the best for you. And so building relationships with students, you know, with their families. And so I think the transition was, it was completely different as you went through the different grade bands, but it was also the support systems also changed. And so I think about high school students, and I would tell ninth graders coming in like, like you were just in the eighth grade two months ago. You know what I'm saying? So right, uh, you know, right. it's not, yes, we want to teach you how to be organized. We want to teach you how to be responsible. We want to teach you how to be accountable, but there has to be this gradual release. It can't just be, oh, you're in high school now." So these are your expectations. You're expected to do these things on your own and keep your schedule. We still have to coach students on how to be students. Regardless of the age. And I think in the great man. And sometimes when they're taller people, taller than you are. Some of my students are taller than oh, yeah. the, We still have to look at them as the students who still need, you know, all of the support that students are getting at a very young age.
2: Right. And that idea of the blank slate in the earlier grades, and then some of that unteaching that maybe needs to happen in the upper grades. And also the evolution of the relationship with the parents and seeing those students as independent, but still needing that scaffolding. So that's a great perspective to come across from all of those grade levels. And I want to talk now how you really move from the classroom to maybe the boardroom, in a sense, when you became the state literacy director at the Mississippi Department of Ed And I know you were part of the team really leading the implementation of Mississippi's Literacy-Based Promotion Act. And it's been talked about, all states look to that state, right, as the Mississippi miracle, if you will. (laughs) But I know it was a lot of hard work and a lot of things went into that. Can you talk us through what you feel were the most important aspects of that act and really how it drove your time and your focus when you were at the DOE?
1: Yeah, I I think first the timeline <laughs> was pretty tight. The law passed in April of 2013. I was hired in July along with an assistant director. Other literacy coaches were hired over the summer and we began August
0: 1st. Yes. Wow
1: um <laughs> and the great thing honestly about the way in which our law is written is that first of all our law is fashioned after Florida's third grade literacy law and florida had seen success they passed their law in 2002 florida had seen success of course under former governor jeb bush with this law and its implementation and for us as a state agency the language in the law was around all of these things that you would think are just happening in schools already, but it actually put it into writing, right? It it made it a requirement. Things about requirements for universal screening, making sure that we're screening students three times per year, which was already in our RTI, our response to intervention process, right? right. But now it's here as a part of this larger package, ensuring that students, again, were identified early, that they were provided with the interventions that they needed that parents were notified early and often, that teachers were trained actually in the science of reading. Our law actually says science of reading. It lists the components of reading. It pulls out the importance of a 90-minute uninterrupted reading block. It also calls for, it calls it kind of a supervisory position in schools, which we translated into literacy coaches actually being in schools, helping teachers. So all of these components came together in, you know, kind of what I call these buckets of what are we doing for teachers and administrators? What are we doing to support our students? And then what are we doing to support our parents and families, right? Those extremely important groups, how we're able to do that is going to, you know, just really kind of translate in student success and student outcomes. So our law actually laid out all of these things. We had to, at the state agency, implement it, right? I always say passing the law is the first step, but the implementation is key. So with leading this effort, the one thing that I think was important for us at the state agency is that there is a hub. There is an office that is totally responsible for the implementation of this law. In some places, this law becomes, in addition to whoever the ELA the English language arts director is, right? Or, or there's right. a department that's already standing and that, oh, well, this is just going to be an add-on to things that you do. And these laws, like the implementation piece is massive because of the monitoring of it all. How are you ensuring that these things are actually happening in schools? So for us, having a hub, having an office that was completely responsible for the implementation of it, I think is critical to how they were able to be
2: successful in implementation over this last decade. So, right. So it doesn't become somebody else's second day job. It is actually somebody's full-time job, to your point, focused solely on the implementation, which is huge in the accountability and how do you monitor it from a state level to the district level to the school all the way down. Exactly. Right. So I think that's so important for people to realize that it really does have to be somebody's day job and not just one more thing on somebody else's plate. So I I appreciate that call out for sure.
1: Yes. That's very well put. Yep. <laughs> and then for us as an agency, you know, I've lived in Mississippi my entire life. So while I was teaching, I was teaching in Mississippi and, you know, in classrooms. And so The state agency, the Department of Education, had always been seen as an auditing agency, right? So if the state department comes to your school, then you've done something wrong, right? They're coming to audit. And so this was the first time that, you know, as a state agency, we actually deployed boots on the ground. And we said, okay, we not only want students reading by the end of third grade, but we're going to help you get there. So it became a partnership. With the state agency and school districts, school district leaders, and school administrators and teachers, because we deployed literacy coaches from our state agency to our lowest performing schools. So they were an extension of the Department of Education. And there was resistance at first, of course, right? There were (laughs) school administrators saying, you know, I'm not sure what you're trying to do here, but I don't know if I want the state agency, you know, the literacy coaches in my school. And I would tell my coaches, you know, we're just going to let our work speak for us. You know, we're going to build relationships and we're going to let our work speak for us. And so we were able to do that. You know, I always say my first two years was really PR. I went to schools. I met with parents. I met with leaders to be very transparent about the law, what the requirements were, when the promotion retention component was actually going to go into effect. And we only had two years. For that law passed in 2013, the first group to take the assessment for promotion retention was 2015. So we had two years for that. So we had a lot of trust to build with those educators who were in the rooms every day and also with the public and with those who were thinking, oh my God, this is going to be disastrous. We're going to have so many children who failed this assessment. So we just had to keep working and building those relationships. I think one of the most important things that we did as well, in addition, of course, to the literacy coaches, is that we provided science of reading training. So with this blank slate that I mentioned for students who, you know, very early on, we decided that we would treat the knowledge of the science of reading in teachers as a blank slate as well. Teachers are prepared in a variety of ways to varying degrees, right, as to how to teach children how to read. So as a state, we adopted one vendor. Our professional development training. And during that time, it was letters, language essentials for teachers of reading and spelling. And we blasted the state with science of reading training. We prioritized which teachers would be trained first, those in our lowest performing schools. We created cohorts of teachers to go through the training. We trained our literacy coaches first. We trained our teachers. We trained our administrators. And we wanted to make sure that as a state, we had a common language. Around reading instruction, and that was beneficial to coaches because now the coach's role, instead of going in and trying to, you know, like we say, help teachers unlearn what they've learned. Maybe teachers were trained in right. literacy or trained in whole language. Then they had gone through this this very powerful intensive training to build their knowledge, and coaches would then help them to transfer that knowledge or that theory into practice into the classroom. So that saved us a lot of time (laughs) because coaches didn't have to go in and teach and say, well, you know, this is phonics or this is this. Okay, you've learned about this in this training. So let's really see what this looks like in practice. Let me model for you. Let's co-teach. Let's co-plan. So it became this collaboration and partnership with the DOE and the schools and school districts with our focus on ensuring that children were getting what they needed and teachers were, of course, getting what they needed in order to be successful.
2: Yeah, and it's so important talking about how, like you said, passing the law is the first step, then you have to implement it. And so often DOE is seen as the accountability police, right? Mm -hmm. But here you really built those partnerships. You not only said, this is what we're requiring of you, but we're going to help you get there. And so that buy-in, I'm sure, was much greater Mm -hmm. because they felt that support. And then you also had those three buckets of stakeholders that educators, the students, and the parents all factored in to how you were doing that. And having that one set of common vocabulary through the training that you received with letters around the science of reading... Because I think the latest survey was that almost half of the universities are still not addressing this in their pre-service programs. So teachers are coming into the classroom with a wide variety of knowledge or a lack of knowledge on the science of reading. I think it's really important for folks to hear that it wasn't just one thing, um, but it was a combination of things. And although you had a very aggressive timeline, it did still take years Uh and you worked together with the schools, with the districts and leadership was bought in from the state all the way down to the schools. So I really appreciate you taking us through that and highlighting some of those key areas. And I guess as we think about the science of reading right now, Is it a movement or is it a trend, right? Because we're seeing the science of reading getting significant attention recently, especially, you know, Emily Hanford sold a story reporting the work you and your colleagues are doing with Excel and Ed, the Right to Read film and other films. Is all of this press really driving a trend with the science of reading as like a buzzword? Or do you feel like this is a genuine literacy movement?
1: That's a great question, Liz. I have had the pleasure of meeting Emily. We've shared the stage several times and, you know, her work has been groundbreaking. I think the difference in this time. So I'll start by answering your question. I think that this is a movement and not a trend. And I think that it's a a movement in the right direction, I think the difference this time, especially with Emily Hanford's reporting dating back to, I think, about 2018 with hard words, right? The conversation transcended boardrooms. And, you know, these are conversations we normally have with school leaders or district leaders. The way that her reporting was able to get into the homes of, you know, with parents, with children and parents being able to hear the importance of how a child is taught to read in a way that was easily understood and things that you could actually see in your everyday interactions with your child. Is my child guessing? Is my child looking at pictures, right, to figure out the word? Oh my gosh, I've seen my child do that. Well, yeah, he or she, they'd memorized That book. They didn't, they weren't reading it. Yeah, it's cute, you know, to see your child, but we really weren't pointing to the words. Like it's, it became something that everyday people could say, you know, no, I don't have a degree in education or I don't have, you know, this formal training, but I know what this looks like the way that you're describing it, the way that other parents were describing what they were seeing in their children during, you know, in her reporting or. The way that it even brought together the, the researchers, the neuroscientists, like all of the school leaders, the, the state leaders, everyone talking about this thing, about the science of reading and how some children just aren't being taught to read. To become skilled readers, they're being taught to kind of read in the moment and it's not sustainable. We gained an entirely new following, I think, of the science of reading movement. It was no longer just teachers and principals or or state leaders. Now we have our parents. Now we have the people where this is where the rubber meets the road, right? And parents are sending their children to school saying, you know, I'm giving my child to you. With these seven hours or eight hours, you're going to teach them how to read and you're going to teach them all the things that they need to know and they come back to me. So to find out that in some cases, and definitely not intentionally, right? that children are going to school and they're not getting these skills, they're not learning how to read proficiently. There was just now an added voice and a very powerful added voice to the conversation. And I think that that's the voice that's going to hold everyone accountable. In Maya Angelou's, when you know better, you do better. I I think that all of that is now coming to fruition and really being something that is embraced that we know better. We know what to do. We know how to teach children how to read. Why aren't we doing that is the biggest question. The most critical question is why aren't some people doing those things? And then for others, what do we need to make sure that you get there? How can we increase your knowledge? How can we do all of those things? And that has translated into a lot of laws that have been passing, especially over the last decade or so
2: around reading by third grade absolutely and we had emily on as our our first guest because i agree the way she told the story was so approachable wow. by a whole new set of folks um including parents and so many parents had that front row seat to trying to see or be the teacher for how their students were learning to read it was just a powerful way And I think very eye-opening for a lot of parents so that it is more of a movement than a trend, which is exciting. But to your point, you said it's not intentional, right? Because I think of myself and I stayed at school. I was so dedicated. I wanted to help those students. And I had no idea that what I was doing, how I was teaching reading was actually harmful to them that was not at all intentional and and so i want to make sure teachers out there are not feeling like they're being blamed for mm-hmm. this you know i had a lot of guilt around that but to your point okay now that we know better how do we get teachers there how do we get schools there how can we help them move towards changing their practices you know and to your point I think a lot of states are passing legislation, which is great. <laughs> but then we are also seeing with some of that legislation, there is opposition. And sometimes it's coming from teachers unions and feeling like if, for example, when some of the laws are passed that are banning the three-queuing system, right? Teachers are feeling that this is taking away their autonomy, taking away what they feel is working perhaps in their class. And I know Sarah Schwartz did a recent article in Ed Week that was great, written with Madeline Will that addressed this idea of teachers' unions opposing the science of reading legislation. And again, more specifically about banning the three queuing system. So how do we do that? How do we implement best practices in a way that feels collaborative and supportive of our classroom educators?
0: Well,
1: you know, as a former teacher, I love the idea of autonomy, but if it's harmful to children, then I don't get to continue practicing my preference. Right. I think that, so I read Sarah's article. I love Sarah's work. I really, really admire Sarah's work. And uh, I really like how she was able to show the different perspectives around the teacher's ability to have autonomy in his or her classroom, why unions are against that. This is one of the few times that with this Sides of ring movement and, and adopting legislation around it, that there has been, you know, to this degree of specificity around instructional practices actually being put in so law, right? What's happening in the classroom? Yes, we've looked at standards before. Right. You know what children should meet, you know, what they should know and be able to do by the time they exit the grade, but when you're talking about in your classroom, you should not teach children how to guess at words. That should not be a strategy used in word reading. That's different. <laughs> right? Right. So, when I think about the spite Or when I think about teachers' unions who are representing teachers and their ability to continue to have that autonomy, you know, I always think about stakeholder awareness is key. You know, sometimes we may be fighting for things and we don't know the whole story. So there are fights, of course, around assessments, you know, how often, how many. The truth about that is that we have to, as educators, we have to collect data in order to make instructional decisions, right? So the fact that we don't want children tested a lot or those things, like how will we know how we're doing? How will we know how our children are doing, right? So some of these things are very practical. They're very practical explanations for why, but there are groups that have taken a stand just to get, just overall, I don't want teachers being told what or how to teach. And then you say, "But what if the other way is harmful to children?" We just don't want teachers to be told what or how to teach. That's my stand. It doesn't matter if it's logical, right. you know what you're saying. It doesn't matter if it makes sense. It's just this is our stand on this issue. And I think as it relates to, you know, our perceptions or our issues that we are just very devoted to, in a lot of cases, in the history, right of our democracy and the history of all things, everything is not going to be black and white. There's going to be a blurred line. Yes, we love teachers. Yes, we want teachers to be as creative as they can be. We want them to ensure that they're building this background knowledge. You know, teachers, children who've never been to the beach, if they have this teacher who brings in sand right? Who brings in the pills, the, you know, all of those things. Yes, the beach balls. I've seen these amazing classrooms, right? That's autonomy. That's, I'm teaching this unit. This is how I'm going to bring this unit to life. All of that is great. But you have to think about, is this student going to be able to be successful when he or she exits my classroom? So not just while this child is in your classroom. If you're teaching a child a, a method of learning how to read that will be harmful over time, that when the pictures are taken away, they won't be able to rely on that strategy anymore. Then we have to draw our line in the sand somewhere to say that, yes, we want teachers to have autonomy, but not when it's at the expense of students and the rest of their lives. Right. This is impacting how children will right? be if, if they will become skilled readers and how they will navigate the world. So this is bigger than second
2: grade, right? Absolutely. I think they said 85% of all curriculum is presented via reading. So their success across the grades and then through life, right? Being able to read medical forms or prescription labels for their child to give them the right dosage, right? This is a massive impact, not just in that second grade classroom. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe it might be Sarah's article where you referenced if it's harmful to children, like we wouldn't want doctors to continue practices that have been found to be harmful. It's really the same thing here Mm -hmm. in terms of, and this was again in Emily's podcast, she talked about the history. The 3 queuing is built on. What struggling readers do okay. in order to approach it. So, we're essentially teaching children the strategies of struggling readers. So, right. And in medicine, it's called malpractice. You mentioned the assessment piece and that idea of, you know, there's too much testing, too much testing. But to your point, how do we know where to focus the instruction? How do we know if we're making progress in terms of students gaining skills. And I always talk about, I think back when you were at the Mississippi DOE, we've had these conversations of, I always ask people, what question are you trying to answer with that assessment, exactly. right? And making sure you know that answer before you give the test, because there has been historically some over-testing and people aren't using those results, but that doesn't mean we throw out the whole concept of assessment. So it's a really important point as we start to try to support teachers to embrace that autonomy to the point until it becomes harmful. That's right. Right. And I think another journalist that you had shared Mandy McLaren of the Louisville Courier Journal investigated Kentucky's literacy challenges. And as a result of that reporting, the Kentucky legislator investigated the Collaborative Center for Literacy Development based at the University of Kentucky and found that they were not meeting the research requirement and a requirement to evaluate the reading programs used across the state that was part of their state contract. So is this a way that we can bring the science of reading into teacher education, like through this policy and legislation and funding? Is that another avenue that we can make sure we're getting to those teachers before they get to the classroom?
1: Well, definitely. You know, I'm an advocate for policy, And, you know, with Mandy's reporting, you know, I say, oh, wow, investigative reporting has now entered the education space, right? And I think that this is a great example of Kentucky recently passed an early literacy law. And a a part of this reporting was yes, we've passed a law in Kentucky and it is supposed to be grounded in the science of reading, but there's this center. That's responsible for training teachers and that is being funded by the state that is not aligned to the science of reading. So I had the pleasure of being interviewed for this amazing piece of work that Mandy was able to release. And I was really in awe by the quick reaction, you know, of the legislature and how they were able to say, "Okay, well, if this is harmful and this is not aligned to the practices, then we Definitely need to make some changes with that. So it was record time, really. <laughs> the way that, yeah, they were able to respond to that. So the reason that I'm an advocate for policy, and you know, you hear people say, "Well, we shouldn't have to legislate everything, right? And i and I agree. I think in this space, though, around early literacy, that there are so many different ways in which teachers are prepared. Ways in which they are prepared to show up on the first day of school to teach children how to read. There are so many different practices that are happening across districts within a district, right, within states that having a policy that outlines best practices with the student at the center, with the, the goal of ensuring that we are improving student outcomes. I think it's critical. I think that there are best practices happening in a lot of places. The problem is that they aren't happening everywhere. So with a state law, state policy around these best practices, making sure that we're screening students for characteristics of dyslexia, making sure that we're screening them three times per year to monitor their progress, providing them with those interventions, providing them with summer learning opportunities, all of those things being in one place and being a requirement for all kids, regardless of where you live, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of the resources that your school has, then we just want some good old-fashioned teaching, right? We want some effective tier one instruction. We want to catch kids early. We want to equip teachers who are standing in front of kids every day with the knowledge and skills to respond to students' different needs throughout the day, throughout the class, and and depending on the skills of what they're teaching, I think that this investment that starts with an investment in people, right? Because you have to have the funding, right? So it starts with this investment in people and teachers and administrators and their knowledge base. And then it continues with all the supports around ensuring that, you know, our teachers, our families, and our students are getting what they need. I think that this is why a policy such as this, in and, and Excel and a, we call it a, a comprehensive early literacy policy, that a policy such as this is extremely important because it really kind of gives this roadmap to how we can begin supporting kids and, and administrators and teachers and families early so that by the time students get to third grade and get to this threshold where they transition from learning to read to reading to learn, that they are prepared. And I always envision like this teacher, you know, like with a baton, right? Handing off the student, kindergarten teacher to first grade and say, I've prepared him or her for you. Right. Take it from here. Right. Right. That should happen at every grade level. And because this focuses on really kind of the kindergarten through third grade space where especially K2, we have not had accountability before. Because state testing begins in third grade. Right. So who's collecting the data in K 1 2, who's monitoring that? Who's monitoring the students? Who's making sure that they are prepared for the next grade? So, with universal screening, with interventions, with all of these supports, we can't wait until third grade. And so, I, I definitely want to say about this we call it a third grade law, but this is not just a third grade teacher's responsibility. This is every Absolutely. teacher that touches that child as they transition to getting to third grade.
2: Absolutely. I was just going to say that because third grade is where the retention, the state testing, Mm -hmm. right? But if you don't start in kindergarten and even pre-K, it's not waiting to fail, right? It's that prevention instead of intervention. And it's so important, that idea that you can't wait till third grade, that it has to start with pre-K and K1-2 as well. And I hope with this movement, as we think about those students in fourth grade and above, right? Because we haven't had these policies in place. And so what can we do to continue to think about policies that might impact those older students as well?
1: Well, that's a great segue into what's happening in Virginia. Virginia just became one of the first states to pass a fourth through eighth grade literacy law. The Virginia Literacy Act passed last year for K-3 and they did not want to wait. So this year they passed a law to support science of reading training for teachers, fourth through eighth grade, to put literacy coaches in middle schools and to also support them in that way. So we are excited about this new movement around adolescent literacy especially because of the pandemic. As a result of the pandemic, we've seen students who missed out on not just that spring semester in 2020, right? There were students who were in and out of schools the entire 2020-2021 school year as well. So we know that there are students who may have missed those foundational skills that they needed to be strong readers, but were then promoted to the next grade. So the goal is to ensure that Teachers who are sitting in those upper elementary and middle school, of course, and even high school classrooms, that they know what to do. Remember at the beginning, I said I was one of those secondary teachers who didn't know what to do. So how could we ensure that they know what to do when they receive a student who is a struggling reader and that we can be proactive and ensure that they receive the supports and training that they need in order to respond to students? But North Carolina, in their law that they passed in 2021, their literacy training and their all of their supports around the science of reading are kindergarten through fifth grade. So they didn't stop at third grade. And we have seen that in several states as well.
2: Absolutely. You mentioned, you know, Virginia, North Carolina. Are there other states where you have seen some innovative things that are making you excited for the future around the science of reading? Yes.
1: The the banning of 3Qing is something that, you know, at Excel and Ed, we have supported states who are embarking on that journey. There are several states right now, like Florida, Indiana, Texas, who have legislation that's moving that is focused on banning 3Qing curriculum in their states, and Indiana. So I'll, I'll take a minute to talk about the role of philanthropy in all of this. You know, funding is extremely important. You know, you hear people say all the time, there's nothing worse than an unfunded mandate, right? <laughs> so funding is extremely important. You know, we're talking about these things, but they have costs associated with, with these items, like universal screeners. You're, we're asking them to adopt screeners that are aligned to the science of reading. Who's going to pay for that? We're asking for literacy coaches in schools. Where is that funding going to come from, right? So funding is is extremely important in the implementation of all of this and all of these things. But philanthropy sometimes can come in and play a really, really great role. For example, the Lilly Foundation just gave Indiana $111 million to support their literacy efforts there for very specific efforts around literacy coaching and professional development. So we have to ensure that we are bringing all of our partners to the table. And philanthropy is just one way to support or to leverage funding to ensure that our efforts are being implemented.
2: Right. We talked about the stakeholders when you were in Mississippi around the educators, the students, and the parents. And they're really that fourth prong is the community, whether it's businesses, organizations. So that is really important in terms of how can we spread around the support for these really critical initiatives. And as we wrap up today, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I wonder you know, for any teachers who are listening in as someone who started your career, your journey in the classroom, what actionable advice would you give our classroom teachers to really continue to help enrich the lives of their students?
1: For teachers, I would say be open. Be open to learning this knowledge, whether it's new knowledge for you or whether it confirms for you some of the best practices that you've known are effective for teaching children how to read. I also say find your people. There are going to be some teachers who are resistant to change. Find those who are not. Find those who you can lean on for support, for collaborative opportunities for different ideas around how to just really make the science of reading come to life for your students. And also understand that your impact goes so far beyond those students who are sitting in your classroom this school year, that you are partially responsible for who these little humans are going to be. And I know that's a lot of pressure. But we owe it to ourselves as educators. We owe it to our students. We owe it to to their future to ensure that we embrace best practices, that we embrace this movement around the science of reading and that we utilize our data to make those instructional decisions that are best for our children and spread the word. Again, find your people, spread the word, go to conferences watch the YouTube videos that we know are sound videos from reputable organizations, listen to podcasts, do those things that you need to do internally for you to learn more about your craft. And again, just be open, be open to the feedback, be open to
2: practices that may be different from those you've done in the past. Yeah, I love that, find your people. And you know, there's so much out there to your point, whether it's YouTube videos or podcasts, And there's, of course, different organizations that you can go to, whether it's the Reading League or others that can point you to ones that we know are based in the science of reading and being open because, again, as someone who didn't know myself, there is this feeling of guilt and, you know, oh, I should have done better. But now that we do, and again, it's not our faults, but we need to be open. We need to be willing to change and to move forward. And now that we know better, do better. So I really appreciate your time today, Kimyana. I've enjoyed our conversation so much. And thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much, Liz. I enjoyed our conversation as well. So thank you for your thoughtful, very intentional questions uh, around this, and I look
2: forward to any feedback that we get around this podcast. Absolutely. And that's that's my next thank you is to our listeners for joining Kimiana and I today. I'm loving the stories that I'm hearing of you listening in on your drive to work and during walks and runs. These conversations are happening because of the work that educators everywhere are doing. And we're so glad that you are part of it. So help us welcome more people to the literacy conversation by leaving a review of your favorite podcast on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes, including a chat with Claude Goldenberg. And I'd love to hear more about what you're experiencing in literacy education. So join the conversation on Twitter. You can follow Kimyana at Kimiana underscore Burke, B-U-R-K, and myself at Liz C. Brick. Thanks so much. Love this episode of the All
0: for Literacy podcast? Subscribe, leave a review, and join the literacy conversation.